Hello everyone and welcome to the 416th episode of Constructed Criticism. I am your host Mason, joined by my co-host Abe. Abe, last week I talked about how every week I'm going to start entering with a question, that way the listeners get to know who your voice is, so it's not confused with Spencer, who's our other host. But Spencer's not here today, Spencer's on a work trip, so he wasn't able to record the podcast. But I'm still going to ask you a question. Because traditions need to be honored, even if it's the first time you're doing them. I'm going to ask you, what's your favorite movie candy? Favorite movie candy? Yeah, like if you go to the movies, you're going to grab a candy. It's like Cookie Dough Bites, Junior Mints, Reese's Pieces, M&M's. What are we doing? Okay, so this has changed for me over the years. When I was growing up, I used to be a Skittles guy. But then Mm -hmm. Skittles started to tear my mouth up. And now I'm well more in in the chocolate territory. Chocolate's like too much. So Reese's Pieces are actually just... I do love me some Reese's Pieces. Trey, former co-host of the show, he, you know, when he left the show, we talked about how he was working on his movie full-time. The movie is finally in second edit, and I got to see it this past weekend. And he and his wife uh, got those of us that came over, like, little movie candy. You know, it's like a thank you or whatever, you know, like, and, like, trying to make the experience more like a cinema or whatever. And uh, it brought up, I am team junior mints are the best, but Reese's Pieces are a close second. And it was just a whole thing. And it felt like now I was, was going to ask. Like, the Junior Mints, they only exist in movie theaters, right? They're, like, exclusively. They might as well be made by Regal Cinema. Like, they have a factory for producing these things. I think the only other time I've seen Junior Mints outside of a Regal is, like, honestly, like, Exxon Mobil stations. Because I don't know if I've even seen other gas stations when I'm thinking about it. I've never seen seen a gas station. That's crazy. Do y'all have Exxons where you are? Like, the mobile store ones? Like, I I know, like, some of these things are regional. Yeah, like, yeah, with, like we have some Exxons where you can like walk in and like okay. the convenience store is like attached. There's also the ones where uh, it's just an Exxon station that's just the gas station, but then the owner like lines up like three vending machines on either side and like an alley on your way to the to the booth. But it will will build your own convenience store. But yeah, I've never seen Junior events. Keep an eye out for that for the listeners. Listeners, let us know what your favorite uh, movie candy is. Enough of that. We need to get into Always Improving because we do have a special guest on the podcast today. Quentin Pierce, former host of the show, Modern Challenge winner from two weeks ago now at the time of this recording with Four Color, is come on to talk to us about competitive events and preparing for them. It's going to be really exciting to have him on the show, so we need to get to that. But most importantly, Abe, we need to do Always Improving because that is the main point of the show. I'm first up this week, uh, and mine was relearning fundamentals is kind of what I wrote down here. And so... I mentioned something like this a couple weeks ago about just practicing the basics, you know, and I kind of mentioned on the show how I've been playing Valorant and, like, I'm doing Aim Lab and stuff like that, but for more specifically recently with 4Color and Modern in general, the format looks very similar to what it has in a lot of ways at various points throughout its lifespan right now, but the, the details are more different than sort of the big picture stuff. So, for example, Hammer has come back in a big way, and there's Mono White and Blue and, you know, we're seeing a bunch of blacksmith skills and things like that in Cauldras. So even though the Hammer deck is still around and a lot of its core contingencies are the same, there are very different play patterns with it. And because the four-color deck has changed so much, that matchup has actually gotten much better for y'all. To a point where, like, I'm having a lot of people in coaching be like, you said this matchup was unlosable, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, well, we're cutting our force of vigors and we're not adapting to this play style. And so that really sparked me to go back, go through everything, Kind of look over this. The other big example is DRC out of Merkhead and how players are sort of moving that around Fledger Shredder. And so we're seeing this all over the place with decks where they are 
essentially the same deck they were six months ago, but the details have changed. And because of that, the way in which the games are changing, and I have uh, a 10k coming up here pretty soon, actually just a week from now, uh, for Modern. So I really wanted to get back in there and sort of make sure, like, hey, what am I doing? Am I doing the right stuff? Like, how are these matchups changed? And how do I want to approach the matchup now that these things have changed, you know? And uh, that's been really helpful and really enlightening and insightful in some ways, especially when it helps with coaching, where it's like, yeah, no, the details of this have changed, but you can still sort of win the matchups by doing this sort of thing. So that's been my always improving moment. It's a little relearning the fundamentals. That's always a great thing to do. We'd, I've talked a lot, personally, some of my always improvings are just updating my priors and like what it is I'm thinking about and what it is that I believe about the formats I'm playing or what's actually going on or you know about matchups and stuff. Just being like, okay, I actually don't know anything about this anymore and I need to relearn it can be really, really helpful. I was listening to um, not the most recent episode of Dominary's Judgment. I think two episodes ago, they did an episode on sideboarding and they were talking about how someone who had only played modern like this time last year after Modern Horizons 2 came out, got their feeling for the matchups, and then we're coming back to it now for um, RCQs, would probably be in an even worse place than someone who maybe had never played the format at all because they would slip up more because so much has changed in the nuance of, of how these matchups are, especially with um, companions going away in that time, like Luris, and also just the way that the metagame has developed and how decks have developed in that time. That like if you were not to update your priors from even just a year ago, despite a lot of the decks being the same, Rhinos, Murktide, you know, the four color decks were starting to pop up around then. Hammer was was like one of the best decks around then. You would still not be doing all the right things, and you'd probably be doing many more of the wrong things if you were to. So it's always an important thing to to do in updating. Yeah, I agree. What is your always improving moment this week? So my always improving is moment this week is something that might seem a little silly but to me is actually like pretty big deal i'm just start with the fact that i try to be a really really level-headed logical person when i play magic i try to make sure i stay really objective but something that definitely happens in anything i think where you're you're using your mind to its full capacity you're trying to compete trying to stay focused i have a lot of really weird superstitions and i can tend to be like really like things just feel off it can really affect me in tournaments and this weekend i was playing a sealed rcq i had this moment during the like before we even opened packs when we were getting the packs passed out i was holding on to packs and i was like oh they want me to like pass it down across the table which i didn't realize and without thinking i was just like i'm gonna pass these packs down you know it doesn't really matter what packs i have they're all the same i was thinking about it while I was waiting to, to open packs and everyone's getting everything together, that like me before the pandemic, I would have been like, oh my god, did I just like throw away the winning pool before any packs were even open? Like, did I give the, did I give away the good the good pool? If my pool is bad, am I like did I throw by just doing this? Did I do the wrong thing? And it would just waste so much mental energy. And I had this huge moment of peace and like I don't have to be that crazy about everything anymore. I can like you know just let myself be okay with like and I opened a terrible pool. And my tournament went terribly. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I got the packs. I opened them. They were bad. I built the best deck I thought I could. That had the best chance of, like, punking people out and winning some matches. And, you know, I, I think in-game I played really well. But I just lost a bunch. But not having that moment of, like, spending all this mental energy on, like, oh, I should have I held on to the packs. Or, like, you know, like, 
just being willing to not not then like spend time thinking about oh should i like just pass the next ones down like not doing any of that it felt so free i was free of these superstitions and while i think that superstitions are fun and i think everyone has them and they're ones that i have that you know i'll probably never get rid of that are just like weird mumbo jumbo i tell myself so i can stay focused and feel good and confident when i need to not feeling like everything had to be that way and getting rid of one definitely was just totally illogical felt so good that i had to bring it up this week yeah i'm glad to hear that you didn't have that moment where you dwell on it i that's one of those things that always like eats away at me when someone's like ah oh, i like i had Axe, and I asked my opponent le- left or right hand in front of me, you know, and they said left, and I did the what? and handed them the right one, you know, and like, if I just done it or whatever, blah 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 blah. It's just like whatever. All that stuff happens all the time. Think about all, how lucky you got all the spots where like you left your house three minutes early and you avoided the traffic that you never knew, or you know, you judged someone who swerved in the lane. So uh, you know, there's so much we can't control about life. I love that you're able to just focus on the things that you can't control. That's all you can ask, baby. That's all you can do. It felt so good. <laughs> yeah, and you've unlocked the honor to play another RCQ now. It's true. It's true. I got to play, and my RCQs have been, this one, there was a former national champion, I think like 2002 nationals or something, like Matt Lindy. Jerry T was there, but he was watching Josh Cho because Jerry had won an RCQ the day prior. Alex Madelton was there. Tommy Ashton was there. There were so many great so many pros in the area. Jarvis, you was there, but he's always at all the local events. He loves to play them. But there's so many great players who, like, even when I was playing PPTQs, and I felt like they were really uh, good skill level challenging events. The people who I wasn't thinking about because they were either silver at the time or gold at the time and already qualified. Seeing all those people's events, really, I, I'm excited to get to test myself on on a level where I'm going to have to play against such good players. That's super exciting. You know what else is exciting? People joining the Patreon. And we love to give the Patreon shout out to the new patrons who are joining the show. Uh, we're joining the family, I should say. On the show, this week it is Anthony. So, Anthony, thank you so much for joining the Patreon. If you want to get a shout out, you can join the Patreon at patreon.com slash CCMTG. You also get to ask the Patreon question, which will go over near the end of the show after our main topic each and every week. And you get to ask us to the Discord. At the Discord, you get to you know talk to like-minded people. There's a lot of people in there talking about hands like keeper mole a lot of like play decision conversations also just a lot of like hopping in around you know nine o'clock their time screen sharing for an hour and a half or so and just able to talk about magic so you know if you're someone who's listening and you have a harder time maybe finding people in your area who are like minded or maybe you're just getting new into this you don't know people the discord's a, a great way to do that everyone there's super accepting and you know abe spencer and i have all been in there at various points and i think one time we were all three there it was short-lived one of us had to go but uh, you'll find us there from time to time. So the Discord's a great place to be for that. You also, so if you join the Patreon, not only do you get access to the Discord, your $10 tier, you get access into the tournament that is Pioneer coming up at the end of the next month for free. It's $10 to enter and has scaling prize from our sponsors over at Game Grid Lehigh, who sponsors the show. And they're giving us, I believe, $1,000 uh, in prize support straight up and then we are adding more money to that pool based on attendance so if you want to play that sort of event get some practice with pioneer that is an exciting thing you can check all that out over at patreon.com slash ccmtg and check out the sponsor game grid lehigh at their website gamegridlehigh.com and if you're joining the discord there is a promo code specifically for patrons of the show 
So get a lot of value for, you know, even just $5 a month and you'd spend another five and boom, you get a free tournament, a chance to win a lot of money and a lot of magical gathering cards. But it's time for us to talk to Quentin Pierce about events. But now it's time for our main topic today. Uh, We have a mysterious guest who has joined us from the CC's past. We have uh, Quentin joining us on the show today. Quentin started the show with Spencer way back when, joined about 10 episodes into things, and has kind of been a part of the show throughout history and time. He's come back here today to talk to us about different events and playing in them, and as well as his most recent challenge win with Four Color, which is, you know, a deck that is seemingly dominating all the time. So we're going to talk about all of those things today with Quentin. But if you don't know Quentin, he is a magic grinder from Utah, much like Spencer. And he has played the Pro Tour two times. Uh, has done well in the Magical Online Challenges. I just mentioned his win with Four Color, which was two weeks ago at the time of this recording. But he also had a Lurus Shadow win pretty recently as well. So still on top of his game, I'm sure, with plenty of other accomplishments in the meantime. And if you're watching the video version of the podcast, a webcam that doesn't like to cooperate. So, Quentin, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? Well, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, doing pretty good. It's nice to talk some magic as always. Yeah, it's something that you know, you're know you used to. It's one of the... Sometimes we have guests on the show and they're not used to podcasting or whatever, but you've done th- literally this show before. So it's kind of a, you know, a much easier experience, I imagine, than for a lot of people. Yeah, definitely recorded lots of podcasts with Spencer in the past. Definitely sad he couldn't make it tonight, but good to be podcasting again. One of the things, you know, Spencer wanted to bring you on the show to specifically kind of talk about types of events, you know, and sort of playing in those events and kind of the value of them. And we kind of wanted to go through those and have just have a conversation with you about them and everything. And kind of wanted to start off with challenges, because that seems to be the, you know, the main way that you're playing magic. Why challenges? Is that the thing that draws you to magic and the thing that you're most engaging with? I love magic for quite a few reasons. I mean, the art on the cards, just collecting the cards is obviously great. But for me, what really pulls me is just the competition. So anything where I can throw in, there's high stakes, good reward. That's what really attracts me to magic. So the challenges are pretty perfect for me. Combine that with having some pets and a fiance and things to take care of around the house. It's pretty nice to be at home and do it. Do you find that Magic Online scratched that similar itch for you that playing in paper? Because I know that you kind of cut your teeth playing in paper on events. And I know that for some people, the switch over is kind of weird and uh, sometimes feels like a different thing. Does it still kind of do that? What does it kind of feel like you're having, you know, like the Diet Coke, you know, trying to keep your fix, if you would? The Diet Coke of evil. I, I think they're both great for different reasons. I Obviously, in paper, really cool to see facial expressions and, you know, kind of mess with your opponent a bit more. But I really like Magic Online for getting fundamentals and mechanics down. There's no way to miss triggers online, right? So for me, it's a really good way to see how card interactions work and how to stack your triggers properly, especially for Amulet, for example. Really good way to learn that. So yes, 100%, the playing Magic Online scratches that itch for me. Just both paper and online do it for different reasons, I'd say. You know, we kind of mentioned there, when talking about challenges, that you have, you know, the fiancé and the busy life and the pets and everything. When you're getting ready for challenges, what does that kind of look like? Because I think that's something that for, you know, a lot of listeners, and Abe, you've been talking to some of the listeners about this in Discord, so maybe you can speak to it as well, but kind of like, when do I sort of make that 
jump or that step forward, you know, and like go from leagues or that sort of thing to playing like the you know the challenges and the supers, etc. So that that'll depend. I obviously have a decent history with magic, so I've got a bit of a bedrock there for me to go off of. I won't lie though, the first couple challenges that I came back into after my long break, I definitely bombed pretty hard. I'd say for me, the best way to get feeling in the swing of things with Magic was to play some just direct challenges with Matt. I'm sure Matt Kling has been mentioned on the podcast before, but longtime friend of Spencer and I. The three of us will actually just hop on Discord. Spencer's usually just watching both of us. We'll stream our hands and whatnot. We'll just sit there and talk about plays that are close. And I'd say that's the best way for me to learn a matchup and feel confident in a metagame. Abe, I'm kind of curious what you have to say about this too, but how is that similar to your kind of experience when it comes to preparing for events? Because what I'm kind of hearing from Quentin is uh, that, you know, like to prepare, he's doing a lot less playing and a lot more talking and thinking about uh, these events and then really kind of testing the medal, not in the leagues or, you know, at a 1K or whatever, but in, in the actual events as it were. How is that similar to your process, and what do you kind of think about that whole plan? Something that I have really driven home to a lot of people is that uh, having a mix of both taking time playing to prepare, and then also doing a lot of the like theory work and figuring out things on paper is really important. And so personally, my process when it comes to like playing challenges is, and this might be similar for you too, Quentin, I don't know, but you know, once I figure out, okay, this weekend I'm going to play this event, you know, just like I would plan out playing my like local cash event i know okay i want to play this event now i need to figure out what the metagame is going to be like what it is that i want to do to attack it and kind of in figuring out where i want to be in that sense it's a lot less about oh i need to figure out how to play my deck or you know what decks are good at my play per se because i've already done all that practice in the time before i'm like okay this event's on my calendar i'm going to play it um i can do a lot more of the prep work and thinking about things once I'm like, okay, I'm going to play this event, I can answer some questions. And then, like you were saying, practice with someone if I have a matchup that I need to figure something out about that isn't obvious to me. You know, I play a lot of events with Hammer specifically. And so building the perfect Hammer 75 for a weekend is something that I, you know, spend a lot of time doing when it comes to either playing a challenge or playing something locally. And if I don't know something, you know, I'll ask Mason to hop on and like jam a specific matchup, maybe pre or post board, talk about, you know, options I have. And really, I think the biggest distinction, you know, maybe our processes have from what a lot of people might have is instead of focusing on, you know, playing, getting the feedback of the results is, you know, thinking forward to the event you're playing and kind of figuring out the questions you want to answer for them, because it's kind of you're on a time frame instead of just like, you know, I'll play this league whenever I'll just play another match to learn another thing, get another game in. You know, you really do have, have to figure out what it is you need to know. And when you're playing on that stage, there is a bit of pressure on how you use your time. Especially for Hammer, I don't envy on how to pick all those cards because, <laughs> boy, yeah, it's a challenge. But yeah, uh, I would say something very similar happened with Matt and I that week. We, I think we usually try and play test on Wednesdays. We try and allot a little bit of time. But um, obviously, I wanted to play four color. It's definitely my favorite deck in modern. But I was kind of just thinking what I wanted to do. And with there being so many four color decks that I'd played against recently, I kind of wanted to change the 75 or well, in this case, what 95 to fit the meta. 
And I, we arrived on cutting the dress downs for a mainboard Amarcool and Eladomri's call. And I, I do think that that was pretty pivotal. That, that came up a lot, especially against the glimpse version of four color. And I, I kind of want to dive a little bit more into that because I think that for a lot of listeners, the idea that we're kind of talking about right now and the kind of way you're talking about preparing for events is honestly really foreign to them. This thing that they hear people talk about on podcasts or maybe they hear like, you know, I think another good example of someone who talks about stuff a lot is Jerry Thompson, who talks about how he gets to the truth of the matchups and talks about the matchups, but doesn't play them a whole bunch, right? So how do you go about asking yourself the question, like figuring out the questions you're supposed to ask and asking those questions and talking through them if you're not playing the games? Like, how do you sort of like get to the questions you want to ask? Like, you know, you, you mentioned you cut the dress downs for another Emrakul and another, an L- main, sorry, an Eldamical main. But how did you even get to that point to, like, know to ask that sort of question? What were you thinking about? What was that kind of whole process like? A big part of that was the previous weekend. Uh, it was actually a paper tournament that I was basing that off of. But my experience with the challenges, there have been lots of four color, too. But, yeah, the previous weekend, I played against three or four mirror matches out of the six rounds of Swiss. And then a lot of it is just Monday morning. I get to work and don't want to get started on work. And so I'll just look at all the tournaments that were going on that weekend, what did well, and just try and figure out how to attack what did well that weekend. So do you find yourself kind of looking for more like trends or do you find yourself more looking towards like, okay, what is the access that these decks can't play on? And like, how much are you willing to switch decks? Switching decks for me is something that I'm really trying to work on. So that that would definitely be something that I would highly recommend. You don't want to be narrow like me. Obviously love playing control, but that's one thing I've been working on with Matt is playing the other side of that matchup to try and understand those decks a bit more. We've been really working on Amulet lately. And boy, is that deck really hard to play it's a fun one <laughs> yeah it, it's a blast i i'm starting to feel a bit more versatile i think i'm getting close to feeling comfortable switching to amulet uh, i certainly am no stranger to murktide so and boy has murktide been crushing it lately but um yeah switching decks is something that i definitely need to work on to become a better magic player for hammer time i i really need to be able to play that confidently when it's good that that's also had a really good weekend yeah, I think it put up three people in the top eight this past weekend. But Abe, you're going to say something? Yeah, so if I can uh, and follow up on that. When you look at like uh, expanding your range in the decks that you're playing and stuff, uh, you know, you talk about how you and Matt will kind of, you know, you'll have this, you, Matt, and Spencer will have this powwow in Discord. That, that's for getting to the truth of matchups. You know, you're playing out the matchups you think are important. You're playing against each other. Do you find that when you're trying to expand your range and, and maybe play a new deck that sometimes you lean away from that and use leagues or these other kinds of events as a tool in being able to get those repetitions without having to, you know, do this just one scheduled time where all of you are available. Like, is that a part of your process? Yeah, definitely. Uh, especially for something like Titan, Matt and I can, he can only teach me how to play the deck so much, right? At some point you've kind of got to get the mechanics down that deck online also a huge worry is timing out, right? When you've got four amulets in play, but you it takes some time to get through those triggers. So yeah, absolutely. Just getting some reps with those decks is a huge part of it. Yeah, and so uh, you know, I was talking to Matt recently, and kind of one of the ways that which y'all are kind of doing this and figuring things out 
he is playing Yawgmoth, but playing cards like Phyrexian Crusader and a bunch of pump spells in his sideboard to pivot his game plan and sort of do this whole new angle of attack of, you know, I'm going to hit the decks that are leaning on white and red removal, I'm going to punish them, and I'm going to play the in-exile game plan. Uh, and I'm assuming, you know, you played a big role as being one of his testing partners and figuring that out and kind of coming to that conclusion. That is an answer to a problem that I think not many people would go to. And, you know, maybe it was more Matt than you. I don't know the exact details there. But can you talk kind of a bit about that process and working through that? Because I, I don't think many people would think to put, you know, scale up Phyrexian Crusader in their sideboards as a uh, solution to the four-color problem. One thing about me as a Magic player is I have zero imagination. Every time I'm going to play four-color, I'm like, hey, Mason, what's the list I should play? So, yeah, the, so the none of that's come for there. me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, none of that's come for me. That, Matt's the brewer there. But I would say Yogmoth is a pretty good deck to choose for a transformative sideboard. Especially since, like you said, it's so good against four color, and I assume that plan would got it would be quite good against Merktide too, right? I, I don't think they would really have any outs to the Crusader as well. I can't think of one besides move to blocks, you know, <laughs> like Ottawara, I guess would just be it, right? Dress down, yeah, dress down would be okay. the classic. Yeah, yeah. that's about yeah. it, though. <laughs> That, that does seem like it could be pretty strong in this metagame. It, he's been text made and says he's having decent results, but your main board plan is just so inherently powerful. If you just kind of had a silver bullet sideboard for the matchups you struggle against, it seems like it could be pretty good. I think that's a really good example, though, of like how you can use a more focused process, uh, especially when you're evaluating things for like a specific weekend, right? Like Matt might just play, you or Matt might just play Yawgmoth this weekend in one of the modern challenges on Magic Online. And the only thing you really need to test in that transformative cyber plan is maybe how well it works in solving the matchup you're trying to transform against, looking at those, and then also making sure, sanity checking, that without sideboarding as much in these other matchups, you're not losing too many percentage points. But that's something where entirely working from theory really works works to your advantage, whereas you know if you were only to play leagues, you'd only see how well the strategy works uh, when you get paired into it, which can be kind of random. So I think it's really important to highlight how you know, you're able to do this really creative thing as a group and have this uh, this really sideways angle of attack and approach to how you're trying to prepare for a new matchup, specifically because of the process you have for these events as opposed to one that, that's more touch-based. Yeah, the, the targeted approach definitely very much helps. Sideboards that are very linear like that, right? very targeted for one or two matchups. So I'll be curious to see how that works. I'm sure Matt's going to crush me pretty hard this week with that sideboard. <laughs> I'm interested in it myself. I'm, I'm curious to see what happens. But let's kind of move on. We've talked a lot about challenges and preparation. I think that's all really great there. But I did want to talk about, does it kind of differ for you when you're playing like an RCQ or maybe like, you know, a 1K type event? Does your approach kind of change? And how does your, like, does anything really change about those sort of events versus something like a Magic Online Challenge or Super? I would say that it does. Uh, you probably have a good perspective on this too, Mason, since you play so much four color. But I, f- I feel like in paper, time is just so much harder for the four color player, right? For me, it's been a huge issue having people concede when they're beaten in paper. That seems to be much more of an issue in paper than online for whatever reason. Can't really explain why that is, but. Yeah, that, that's certainly been a big factor for me. And sometimes will just chase me away from four color entirely. I'll just play Merktide in a weekend when I'm 
not feeling like I have the mental capacity to do that or just want to have time in between my rounds. I would say the metagame does change a lot locally for whatever reason. I guess there's just tons of control players. You're going to be planning on a bunch of mirrors. So I, I do think you really need to plan that for that, at least around here. Yeah, so you're kind of, you try and take into more of account, like, the differences not only in, like, the culture, right? Because there's kind of, I feel like there's a culture on Magic Online that, like, you know, if there's, like, some hard-to-execute combo, you can expect a lot of your opponents to, like, you know, concede for life equity. You know, both players are kind of like, yeah, at some point, I'm going to play that style of deck, I'm going to pay it forward now. Versus in real life, you know, those things are shortcuts, that is a problem, but players feel like, oh, I'm taking forever while they're shuffling up their deck, blah, 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 blah. They also, you know, there's like a lot of for whatever reason gets a lot of hate, probably because it's the best deck right now, and so there's a lot of, you know, animosity towards that. So you're saying that when you go into those events, you're kind of preparing for the almost the more human element of things, less so than the magic element of things. Yeah, I would say so. I think that's a good description. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So I guess my kind of follow-up from that is so, you know, our, the, the other thing about RTQs, too, in, like, one case, right, especially, like, you know, in localish areas, you're going to have an idea of, like, what a good percentage of the field is going to be on, right? Like, if you go to a 1K, right, and it's, like, 64 people, heck, your car is probably, you know, 5% of the room or whatever, and you probably know some of the other ones. But if you go to something like an SCG, and NRG, where, like, you know, the Grand Prix that we used to have, how different is that for you, those sort of con events where... They're much bigger, like the Magic Online Challenges, but they still have that human element that we're kind of talking about with the RCQ and 1K, 2K type stuff. For a Grand Prix, I would say that you can expect a very similar metagame, if not identical. So I, I think I would treat it exactly the same. I, for example, I feel the most confident playing four color right now in Modern. So if there was a Modern GB tomorrow, I would snap off four color and beg you for your current list. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I think I would treat it pretty similar, other than I do think in paper you do need to play a lot faster, just in general. So I, I have a question for you, though. Our last guest on the show was Kellen Pastor, and he kind of talked about playing Tier 2 decks. And he talked, talked about the value of, uh, you know, if you're playing uh, a tournament, all that matters is winning. Maybe you need to play the deck that is a little more 70-30 against the field, you know, and has, like, polarizing matchups. Versus a deck like Merktide, which, like, you'll probably get top 8, top 16, but you're not, like, you know, your chances of winning are pretty low. People are going to come up here for you. Kind of a, a, a sub-question of that I have for you is, does, like, the expected rounds in the tournament play any factoring into the decks you're going to play? Kind of in a similar vein, right? Like, if you're going to play a six-round RCQ, something like Merktide, you're kind of always, you know, if you're one of the better players in the room, you're putting yourself in that sort of top 8 perspective. But it's still such a strong deck that over 15 rounds, right, its consistency and stuff like that will be really helpful versus something like Belcher or whatever. So how do you weigh sort of the pros and cons and that sort of thing? Or is that something you even think about at all? It definitely is. So you're speaking to a guy that likes to play Jund a lot and has caught constant crap from Matt for liking to play a 50-50 deck, right? Personally, I really just like to play what I like to play. If it came to a GP, though, I I, I can't think of a deck that I would be willing to play right now that would really gun for the top decks. I mean, maybe if I if I got better with Amulet, I would be more willing to say yes. I'll, I'll play Amulet and beat up on the four color players all day. Mm-hmm. But that that probably goes back to me being not as well rounded as I should be. I think having that position is plenty defensible, especially especially in a metagame like Modern is in right now, where mm-hmm. four color is pretty popular. 
we, you know, we kind of talked about your thoughts and opinions and preparation for all these different types of events. And, you know, we kind of really got in there about like the process of uh, getting ready for like, you know, the, the premier events that you're playing the most often. So I think, you know, that's really helpful for a lot of listeners and then we talk about, but one of the things that uh, Spencer wanted us to talk about is like, what kind of separates these from your local events? Like what keeps like this versus something like, you know, your maybe your stores win a box or your like, you know, the F and M or their store championship or that sort of thing. Like, why are these so different and like what kind of separates them and, and like, and are they that different and should they be that scary for some players? Yeah. For me, that's just going to be who you could potentially play against. There's obviously some really great local players around here that will venture out to win a boxes. But in these challenges, I've played against Wafa Tapa. I've played against Gabriel in the sea. That's just not possible when you're playing in your local events and that's okay. You know what I mean? But, I do think that those types of players are going to make you a lot better. If you make a mistake against one of those guys, they're going to make you pay for it. You know, the point of the show, I don't have to remind you as an alumni, is hashtag always improving. Mm-hmm. When it comes to how you, uh, you know, are looking to learn something or looking to grow out of an event, you know, looking for to maximize the opportunity you have when you're playing Magic to become a better player, how is it, do you find that you look at those different kinds of events, you know, we talk about, challenges or your local weekly your fnm versus leagues or you know going to an scg con or an nrg event do you approach those mentally differently with the kinds of things that you're going to be trying to learn and and if so could you talk about that a bit i think anybody who believes that there's not something to learn from each match they played uh, is probably not being too honest with themselves i'm trying to remember who said it i think it might have been reed duke i think they said I played one match of Magic perfectly and I lost on turn zero. So yeah, I, I approach every match as there's always something to learn. I also like to instill the Jerry Thompson method, and that's you know you're playing to learn to play Magic. If you don't win that tournament or do well at that tournament, I mean in the grand scheme of things, you're there's always going to be another tournament to play. So your approach should be to learn something from each event. Winning or doing well is just gravy. I, I that's not always easy, right? I I'm human. I get upset when things don't go my way, but that that's definitely how I try and approach those tournaments. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to look at it too. And I think you know, if you're a listener, and maybe you're you know, we've had some of the patrons bring it up, and we get it asked sometimes on YouTube comments and stuff like that. So if you're having that spot and you're like, well, is it time that I play RCQs or is it time that I play one Ks or whatever? Really just think about what your kind of goals are right now. And there are no wrong answers to that question. You know, we talked about that a lot on the show where uh, your goals are what you make them. Right. And that's one of the best things about magic. It's a game you can engage with any way you want to. But if your goals are to like kind of strive to play bigger turns and bigger things, you should try to push yourself and you should never be where you are comfortable in the water. You know, you should always be having to kind of pedal yourself up a little more and a little more, a little more. It's almost terrible when you're the biggest fish in a pond, you know, where you're like something like that, like you to always grow because it's so much harder. And you're kind of standing, you know, and you're kind of resting on your laurels in some way, because I can't think of a better way to keep the swimming algae going, which was so good. But it's all right. We're going to cast it. But yeah, I think that's really great. You know, Quentin, that kind of wraps up a lot of what we want to talk about. But I wanted to end kind of on one last question for you. That question is. When you're preparing for events, what's it like to have such a great resource like me that you can DM at any time uh, to get uh, such? No, jokes aside, 
how important though is it to have like a friend group in a way people to talk to and trust like how much has that been helpful to you because you know we kind of talked about it earlier but i kind of skipped over because i knew i wanted to cover it here at the end how important is it to find like-minded players like you and people you can have honest conversations with and know that like hey even if i disagree with matt or spencer at the end of the day we're still friends we still love each other you know and it's not really gonna be this whole thing yeah absolutely pivotal to surround your pe- yourself with people who are like-minded with the way they approach the game and also to go back to what you were saying, biggest fish in the pond, I often feel like I'm the dumbest person in the room. So you know, I'm just kind of standing on the shoulders of everybody else. It's a great way to learn if you're surrounded by people who you think are smarter than you, right? And that's often the case for me, especially when it comes to magic. But being able to talk to Matt and Spencer about what I should play or how I should change my deck list for a certain metagame, absolutely invaluable. Everybody who's listening to the show and is a part of hashtag always improving, you're you're already doing it right. You're surrounding yourself with people that have the same goals as you and want to improve, and that's going to make you improve. Well, Quentin, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about this topic today. Hopefully, it was a fun time for you and helpful for the listeners. And we're happy to have you on anytime you win a challenge. But unfortunately, unless you win a challenge, it's going to be like episode 500 type situations. You understand? We sort of have a bar for that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks for having me, guys. It was a blast. Awesome. Well, let's go into the Patreon question of the week. Once again, if you want to ask a question to be on the show, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash ccmtg. The show will always be free. But if you want some perks like we talked about earlier in the show, this is the way to do it. And to get questions like this one right out on the show. This week's question is, how do you come up with in-game strategies in the first place? What specific part of either an unknown match versus a known matchup probably post sideboard are you looking to create a winning in state versus i guess one step deeper would be how can you evaluate that the game has gone significantly off the rails enough if you know to pivot versus think of a new plan uh hopefully this is a question you can answer and you know abe we kind of talked about this briefly there with quentin on the show a little serendipitous but how do you sort of start up with forming these end game strategies because we spent a lot of time recently on the podcast talking about this macro big picture winning image stuff Yeah, so I think when you're looking at playing the game out backwards, which is kind of something we talked about when we had Hain on uh, quite a while ago now, which feels crazy to say, was looking at the game with where you're trying to take it and then engineering it backwards, right? So something I talked about in my Always Improving last week was this match I played of Rakdos mid-range against Is It Phoenix, where the game came down to decking and I'd kind of lost sight of that in the very end of it. And had I not, I would have won. But, you know, what happens in me getting there is really important to talk about too, right? So for me, I kind of know, in that matchup specifically, if I use it as an example, Phoenix players who have Jace will often play the matchup to just constantly be applying pressure with threats and then hold on to a Jace or try to protect the Jace very close to the end of the game to just win by decking if they've, if they've cast a lot of treasure cruises or even copy treasure cruises, if they've just been digging through the deck at a high velocity, that's their end game plan. So for me, you know, uh, around the time that the game had developed to the point where they had resolved their first treasure cruise and I hadn't been able to disrupt them in that stage of the game for, for the matchup, I started focusing on using my go blanks and my graveyard trespassers and my hive of the eye tyrant to exile specifically cards that would generate long game value 
and try to attrition their resources because I noticed that they had lost access to two copies of Jason. It was very unlikely they played a third. So, you know, if you think about what it is I just described there, I was thinking about the stage of the game I was in, where we were in the game, right? My opponent had resolved Treasure Cruise. I'd lost the fight over maybe stranding Treasure Cruise for them and making it so that they, they couldn't continuously gas up and have a lot of resources to fight me with. So then I pivoted towards, instead of answering them with trying to shut them down and keeping them from resolving the card that lets them get ahead in the game on cards, fight over the cards that mattered to actually winning the game, right? And run them out of win conditions because that was the way that I had left. And I knew that because they were going to see all of their deck, I would have access to beating all of their win conditions. Whereas normally, you know, another way the game could have gone is that I could have stuck like some Blood Tithe Harvesters or had a Fable of the Mirror Breaker active for a while and and tried to take over the game that way and just shut them down in that stage to win with with the pressure I'm applying. So really, you know, thinking about the end game is thinking about how you're using your cards on a strategic level of what it is you're accomplishing with the spells you're casting to arrive at a position where you've had your your things trade off profitably or you've set up a position where you can win and making that game plan come to fruition. I don't know if you have uh, much sound of mason i'm sure you do it's a really good question yeah there's a lot of different ways i think to kind of go about answering this question i kind of like the way you did and i think i'll go kind of a similar way of answering it but basically like abe said it's really identifying what you think their sort of strength is identifying what the kind of weaknesses that your deck presents to that problem right and then trying to play the game in such a way to leverage your cards that are good against them, and minimize their cards that are bad against you. And I think a great example for maybe modern to kind of look at is Murktide versus Four Color. So the Murktide deck is very binary in what it does. And its only real way to beat the Four Color deck is to resolve a Murktide with Counterspell Backup. And the plan basically being that there are very few cards in the Four Color deck that will actually be able to kill a Murktide regent or get it off the battlefield. And so they plan is, hey, if I set up, you know, Murktide with Counterspell, there's only about eight cards in their deck that actually can answer this. So they're going to need to have two of those eight. I'm going to do this early and really put the pressure on them. And then ideally, I'll even have another Murktide to follow up after this. So I'm going to make them have a bunch of it, right? Now you as the four-color player get to know like, okay, Solitude and Teferi, these are my main answers to this problem that are at least the easiest answers to the problem. And I'm going to try not to use these cards in spots before that happens unless I have to, so that when the time comes, I can more easily execute this plan against them, right? And so you're kind of playing the game about that. And that is pretty easy to do when you think about things big picture-wise because it's so clear and precise. Like the Murktide deck just doesn't have enough tools, actually, and the other kind of games that can play play into what Four Colors good again. So it's a very clear access. And while it's not always so clear for other decks, you can kind of look at those sort of things, like Abe mentioned, Chase from War of the Spark, who with the mill condition, you're able to actually, like, you know, win the game that way. You can figure out what their access are and play to beat those sort of things. And you kind of really think about, okay, how does the game look when I win versus what they win, kind of in your mind's eye, which is pretty easy to think about, right? Think about what the early turns look like and then try to map out plans to do things along the middle. And it's that middle part that I think is really hard for a lot of people to get to because they can, they know how they lose the game and they know how they won the game, but they're not sure how they got into those spots. And so 
I practice thinking about how to make my cards line up as profitably as possible in all of those spots. And when it comes to like the off the rail thing, like, hey, is this like this game is going so weird? Like, this isn't what we talked about. You know, they have just like, let's say, I don't know, a bunch of Karanoses, you know, in either of the decks we talked about, right? They're just doing something completely crazy. You're going to have to adapt to that in the moment. But ideally, by practicing these sort of thought processes and the sort of macro planning and the strategic planning that we're talking about here, you're able to adjust on the fly, figure out what you're doing. And ideally, you'll understand your deck well enough to know, well, what cards do I actually have that can answer a Karanos that resolves on the board, you know, and sort of play the game from there and be like, okay, we're no longer worried about that thing we talked about before. Now we have to solve this Karanos problem before we can move forward. So I think that is kind of my answer to that question. And the best way to start doing this is just to start coming up with plans or listening to people that have plans. Like if you play either side of the matchup that I mentioned earlier, Murktide or Four Color, or like Abe mentioned, Phoenix and Red Black, uh, you now have some like mini roadmaps on how those things play out. Use that from there and start figuring it out elsewhere. So hopefully that was helpful for your question. Uh, Abe, is there anything else you wanted to say on this topic before we move on? Yeah, if I can tack one more thing onto it, if yeah. this is something that you feel like you are having trouble ascertaining alone, I know that coming up with game plans and thinking about how matchups play out can be really nebulous to a lot of players who don't have a lot of experience, or it's just not even how you think about the game. I know that it's something that is kind of a rarity that, that I feel I, I experience where people can really do this really well, and the people who can are kind of amazing. Like, I think I'm okay at it, but I know that... Um, my friend Jonathan Sekenik is amazing. It's probably his, his strongest skill that I wish I could emulate. But what really sets it apart is that he can do it alone. Something you can do if you're having trouble with this is play a matchup with another person that you trust and you can talk about the games with. And then go back through the game you just played and kind of talk about where things could have gone differently. And ascertain where the game was really won or really lost which exchange was what defined the game, right? So my red-black versus is an example. It's that my opponent resolved that first treasure cruise. So they, they pulled up ahead on cards really, really far, and that it was going to be, I wasn't going to be able to shut that down. Or in Mason's example, it's I was able to stick that Murktide region and protect it, and that really defined the game because I played around that, and therefore, you know, it was four-color. Holding on to those answers is even more important, and maybe you don't want to just run out of Teferi to trade with the counterspell early because it's more important and they might counter something else. You know, think about those things and really working with other people makes it a lot easier because you can both be looking at the same game and think about it from both sides, which is really the hardest part of doing it yourself, is thinking about it from both sides. If you also want to ask a question on the show, you can go to youtube.com and leave a comment on the latest episode of the show. We were a little bit held up last week, so the most recent show did not come out till I think actually today on YouTube. So that's on us, but we didn't have any YouTube questions there for this week's episode. But just as a little friendly reminder, you know, if you do want to get a question right down the show, go to youtube.com uh, slash constructed criticism and we'll be there. And, you know, you can find the shows and everything else on the network. And if you prefer to listen to your podcast that way, we have a visual medium. We do have the show up there and you can see us talking, moving our hands, uh, smirking, just little things like that. And I know some people prefer that. And we don't talk about that too much on the actual podcast, but if that's the way you prefer to do things, we do have that for you over at YouTube.com. There should be a link in the show 
notes if you're listening on Spotify, iTunes, or on our website. That is going to do it for this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. You're going to want to make sure you check out the rest of the network. We have Drafting Archetypes with Sam Black, a limited focus podcast. So if you're wanting to do that, you can check that out. And then we have Common Knowledge, which is a popper podcast, all that popper all the time. I have not actually looked into popper recently, but I know we're, we're past week one of Double Masters being out. And so I am sure that things like Monastery Swiss Spear and Friends have made a huge impact on that format. So if you've been wanting to play a challenge, like maybe you heard Quinn talk about earlier on the show, Popper might be one of the more easy and accessible ones to do when it comes to getting a rental service or whatever. So you might want to go check out the Common Knowledge guys and kind of get a feel for where the format's at over there. Make sure to like this show and subscribe and review wherever you're kind of doing if you want to help support the show and share it with your friends. All that stuff is great. And Abe, if someone wants to find you, where can they go? They can find me at twitter.com slash more nothings. And I am still open for coaching. I have not that many slots because working takes up a lot of time now. But I do want to be able to help people with Pioneer and always Modern Hammer. I love that deck so much. And it's been having a real resurgence lately. Heck yeah. If you want to find me, you can find me each and every week here on the show. You can find me over at twitch.tv slash TheBasicClark. You can find me each and every week at Card Kingdom, where I'm writing about a new thing. I just did an article last week about why you're probably losing a Pioneer. So if you feel like you're losing a Pioneer and a little lost, you might want to check out that article over at Card Kingdom. And if you want to get coaching, I do have some availabilities. I had a lot of people do you know a month's worth of coaching sessions before. And as we're near the end of the month, you know some people are going to stick with it. Some are going to fall off. And so if you're wanting to get in and do that, uh, we're getting close to the best time now, which the easiest way to reach me is via Twitter, which is at Mason E. Clark. My Twitter also has my email that you can send me if you want to talk that way about setting up a schedule, time for a coaching session. Feel free to do that. And we'll see you all next week for another episode of Constructed Criticism.